Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Tuesday, June 15th, and this is your FT News Briefing. The world's longest undersea electricity cable is set to be switched on this week. The U.S. Federal Reserve may start talks over tapering its asset purchases, and NATO leaders issue a stern warning about China. Plus, Joe Biden meets Vladimir Putin this week in Geneva. We'll get more out of it. I mean, having this summit in the first place is a, is a win for Putin because it gets him what he has consistently wanted, which is a seat at the top table. Our Europe editor, Ben Hall, will tell us more about this historic face-to-face meeting. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. The world's longest underwater electricity cable will be switched on any day now for a test run. The 720-kilometer long link is buried at the bottom of the North Sea and the Norwegian fjords. Britain's National Grid and Norway's Statnet teamed up to build the 2 billion euro North Sea link, as it's called. It'll allow the two countries to trade power. Cables like this are key to the UK's strategy for cutting carbon emissions and boosting offshore wind, since they allow the British grid to share or import power depending on supply and demand. The UK has plans for two more cables, or interconnectors. One will link the UK with Denmark, the other one with France. The U.S. Federal Reserve starts a two-day monetary policy meeting today, and it may begin the tricky discussions about shrinking its asset purchase program. During the pandemic, the Fed's been buying $120 billion a month in treasuries and mortgage-backed securities to prop up the economy. Now, the question is when and how to wean the economy off these purchases. I spoke to our Washington bureau chief, James Politi, about this. He said the Fed's grappling with two countervailing pressures. On one hand, it wants to move very carefully and judiciously because it's uh, still quite far from its goals, especially the labor market has been in some ways underperforming. Um, And so it doesn't want to withdraw support for the economy prematurely before the U.S. is kind of out of the woods from the pandemic. On the other hand, there are signs inflation is rising, um, has risen much faster than expected. The economy is growing quickly. And so the Fed doesn't want to be kind of caught behind the curve in tackling that. And that would argue in favor of a sort of more rapid move toward tapering. Now, there is precedent when it comes to tapering back asset purchases. Um, Back in 2013, many might remember the market's taper tantrum. What was that and what might it tell us about how the Fed might approach things now, James? Well, what happened is um, under the tenure of uh, Chair Ben Bernanke at the end of the financial crisis, the Fed decided that it was time to begin the process of unwinding its quantitative easing program, you know, that version of today's asset purchases. And the, the initial announcement from Chair Bernanke kind of took the markets by surprise. And uh, under Chair Powell, the Fed is sort of very um, conscious of that precedent and has repeatedly said that it wants to give ample warning uh, to everybody involved about its tapering plans, and it will proceed with great care and try to make sure that the markets have plenty of time to digest what's coming down the pipe. So besides timing, what other factors might the Fed consider in its plans to taper off these asset purchases? One other um, thing that I think plenty of market strategists and economists are looking at is the composition of the taper, so whether or not the Fed will decide to cut back more rapidly on its mortgage-backed security purchases, just given the fact that the housing market 
is so strong as opposed to its uh, treasury bond purchases. James Politi is the FT's Washington bureau chief. NATO yesterday warned that China poses systemic challenges to the rules-based international order. Members of the Transatlantic Alliance met in Brussels yesterday. Their statement about China cited activities like disinformation, military cooperation with Russia, and the rapid expansion of China's nuclear arsenal. It shows just how much relations between China and the West have worsened in the last year and a half. This was the first NATO summit for U.S. President Joe Biden, and it comes right after he met with G7 leaders in England. That group also criticized China over human rights, trade, and lack of transparency over the origins of coronavirus. President Biden's next stop, Geneva, where he will have his first presidential face-to-face with Russian leader Vladimir Putin. Now, it may not be the warmest of meetings. Earlier this year, Biden called Putin a killer. Russia just included the U.S. on a list of unfriendly states, and neither has an ambassador in the other's country. To talk about what we might expect from Wednesday's meeting, I'm joined by our Europe editor, Ben Hall. Hey, Ben. Welcome to the show. Nice to be here. What is Biden hoping to get out of this meeting? Well, the overriding objective for the Biden administration is to try and make the relationship in this now quite stock phrase, stable and predictable, to try and mitigate some of the worst kind of Russian behavior and to establish a framework of relations which aren't exactly cordial or constructive, but might avoid some of the worst kind of provocations, which could then not necessarily spiral out of control, but lead to a progression of ever greater retaliation. And what about Putin? What is he hoping to take away from the Geneva meeting? I mean, having this summit in the first place is a, is a win for Putin because it gets him what he has consistently wanted, which is a seat at the top table. And here you have a new US president and he is affording the Russian leader with a high profile summit uh, right on the back of the G7 meeting and the NATO meeting and the, and the EU meeting. So Putin, in a way, has already achieved some of what he wanted. Biden, uh, I think what he would really like to do is just park Russia, make sure it doesn't become a bigger problem than it is now, so that he can focus largely on his domestic agenda and on uh, containing the rise of China, which is his overriding foreign policy priority. So, Ben, what does the rest of the world see or or think about this uh, meeting between Biden and Putin? I think there is generally some support for the idea of diplomatic engagement with Moscow, Uh, certainly in uh, Paris and Berlin, and to a degree, uh, Brussels, you will hear support for the idea of trying to find some kind of accommodation uh, with Putin. Um, uh, The view in Kiev or the Baltic states or Warsaw would be very different. They may feel that Biden's initiative, his outreach to Putin, smacks of naivete and that actually he is not going to be able to change uh, Putin's behavior. And this is all a bit of a charade. And at the end of the day, what is really needed here is firmness towards Putin and increasing the cost to Putin um, and those around him of Russia's actions. And that is so far what uh, um, President Biden has been slightly reluctant to take. But more importantly, uh, Biden's European allies have been reluctant to take. 
So Ben, for me, the, the big thing that's looming over this meeting between Biden and Putin is that it's been three years since a U.S. president met with Putin. And that last meeting was when Donald Trump and Putin met in 2018 in Helsinki. Um, obviously memorable. How might this meeting compare? This meeting will be a, a pale imitation in a way of, of that meeting in Helsinki in 2018 um, for the simple reason that we won't necessarily see Biden and Putin jostling with each other uh, at a press conference. So we won't have that sort of jaw-dropping spectacle of Donald Trump suggesting that he had more faith in the Russian leader than in his own uh, intelligence services about Russian interference in, in the US election. This will be at the very best, I think, the beginning of some kind of process whereby the Russian and American leaders can find a way of carrying on talking, working out uh, frameworks for the many problems that they have, and that they, you know, at best, you might be able to uh, re-engage some processes like the peace process in Ukraine. But I think it's unlikely to get any of that breakthrough in this first meeting. Ben Hall is the FT's Europe editor. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Before we go, a few words from Morgan Stanley Chief Executive James Gorman. If you want to get paid New York rates, you work in New York. That's part of a tough message from Gorman. He sent that to New York-based employees who don't want to return to the office on a regular basis. He said if you're comfortable eating out in restaurants in the city, you should feel safe working at the bank's headquarters. Gorman also indicated he would take a dim view of employees who want to stay remote, and especially those who want to work from places like Florida or Colorado. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.